but we had, you know, people on the lookout for, you know, wind patterns and the movements of the fire and really keeping an eye on um, the crew so we could just focus on, you know, getting those fish out of the, out of the stream. So um, it sounds more intense than it probably was. Um, it was still a little unnerving when you see smoke billowing up on the hillside and you're trying to rescue some fish. Welcome to VetCast, Veterinary Climate Action and Sustainability Talks, the podcast created by veterinary students at Colorado State University focused on the impacts of climate change on animal health. Thank you for joining us today. Today we'll be talking about wildfires and their effects on animals. The podcast today will be divided into three segments. My name is Josh Goodman, and in my segment, I'll be talking about the effects of wildfires on wildlife. Joining me later in the podcast will be Jesse Overton, who will talk about the dangers of interactions between our pets at home and forest critters. After that, Ryan Decay will brief us on the effects of air quality on animal health and send us off with an action plan to prepare for an emergency situation. I'm going to start us off with a quick recap on wildfires. Due to the advancement of firefighting technology, there has been a decrease in the number of wildfires. However, when we do see wildfires, they burn more land than we've seen in modern history. Why is this? Well, we don't really know. The two most important theories I found were either poor land management or climate change. There's strong evidence that shows that increased temperatures attribute to droughts, and droughts are proven to increase the severity of wildfires. Just take a look at California. Their longest drought lasted from 2011 to 2019. According to the National Interagency Fire Center, 68.5 million acres were burned from 2010 to 2019. The data between 1960 and 1999, in which California had no long recorded drought, shows that on average, every 10 years, 35 million acres of forests were burned. When California was suffering from drought conditions, two times more land was burned. Warmer conditions decrease the amount of moisture available in the environment, which in turn creates dry conditions that are perfect to drive wildfires. Another very important piece of information to add is that for the past 25 years, most wildfires have been started by humans. So how does wildfire affect wildlife and why should we care? Immediately after the fire, the animals that survived are faced with the challenge of finding food. Many will die due to the lack of food or shelter. Large animals like bear, deer, and elk will be able to run away and avoid the fire. Since they're looking for food and their habitat has been destroyed, they're likely to end up in residential areas. You'll hear more about that from Jesse later. Animals who are sick, old, young, and can't escape are really the ones who suffer during wildfires. One of the least acknowledged casualties of wildfires are fish. Wildfires have devastating effects on fish populations. Joining us today to talk about the effects of wildfires on fish populations is Josh Naring. Mr. Naring is Colorado Park and Wildlife Southeast Region Senior Aquatic Biologist. Mr. Naring has extensive experience managing and recovering sport fish, native fish, and amphibians throughout Colorado, both in his current role and his previous six years as an area aquatic biologist. He is responsible for the management of the aquatic wildlife resources in the Arkansas River Basin. Prior to coming to Colorado Parks and Wildlife in 2010, he was a senior aquatic biologist and operations manager for a fishery and water quality consulting firm, managing projects across the U.S. 
Mr. Nering holds a bachelor's in science in fishery biology from Colorado State University. Thank you so much for being here, Mr. Nering. We're so, so excited to have you. To start off, can you please explain to us the effects that wildfires have on fish populations? Yeah, the uh, wildfires affect fish, and especially fish, in a variety of ways. You know, most of the impact isn't necessarily immediately realized. We don't really see, you know, the impact from, say, water temperatures raising or anything like that. It's really the aftermath, especially in the basin. So if it burns really hot throughout the basin, um, like we've seen after most wildfires, especially if there's a monsoon that, that rolls over or a big thunderstorm, um, the soils aren't stable. And so a couple things happen. First, even if it's a light drizzle, um, the ash from the fire can raise pH levels in the water and trout and other fish are particularly sensitive, sensitive to swings in pH. Um, so it can actually just wipe them out strictly from the pH. But if it's slow movement of pH, then they'll have ability to kind of adapt to it. But if it's sudden, those sudden swings, they can't adapt to very well. And then, you know, if it's a heavier downpour, um, we get a lot of bed load, a lot of movement of the sediments, both off the hillsides and in the stream bed itself, uh, which can cause increased turbidity levels and, you know, difficulty with them regulating uh, their oxygen levels through their gills. So it might affect their uptake of oxygen. So those are kind of the main, yeah, the main things where it affects fish. Um, and in most cases, a wildfire is going to cause at least a partial fish kill, if not a complete fish kill in that, in that drainage. You know, the other thing I guess I would add about um, sort of, I guess, maybe a silver lining to uh, wildfires and having these fish kills is... You know, in some of the some of the streams, it may re actually remove the non-natives for us. So it may kill off all the non-native fish that compete with cutthroat in a stream. And after that stream heals, uh, if we can keep those non-native fish from moving back up, we might be able to introduce native fish into those streams. Um, it's kind of a longer process because it obviously takes, you know, probably five to ten years, depending on the fire, for that drainage to heal completely. But um, Kind of a silver lining to, to wildfires. Um, yeah, it can be pretty devastating. Um, we'll see what these fires um, from this year, uh, what's going to happen, but um, I'm sure we're going to lose some populations as well. Can you tell me more about your experience going behind the fire lines in the 2016 Hayden Pass fire? The Hayden Pass fire of 2016 was um, sort of southeast of Salida. And we had a unique strain of cutthroat in the south prong of Hayden Creek. It's most, most closely related to a Colorado River cutthroat, but it had unique haplotypes um, in the genes. Uh, those haplotypes, the only other place we found them was in a museum specimen from the Smithsonian, from an early explorer that came out, collected some fish from Twin Lakes, and uh, luckily preserved them in alcohol, so that preserved the, the DNA. So the wildfire came through, and then we subsequently had a pretty big thunderstorm up there, and the drainage had burned very hot, I mean, even down to the riparian areas in, in many locations. And had a, fortunately, the biologist at the time, Greg Poliski in Salida, uh, was aware of this and saw this coming after the wildfire, and so we organized a big effort to 
uh, partnered with the, with the Forest Service and CPW biologists. They allowed us to get trained up to be um, in behind the fire lines and go in and rescue some of those. Um, we got some training as it relates to uh, the bags. I don't know if you've ever seen them, but if the wildfire is moving towards you, you have these fire retardant bags that you have to zip yourself up and it's like a sleeping bag pretty much that covers your entire body. So you have to, it's kind of a fire drill where it's no pun intended that you have to get in these suits, zip them up, lay down, and hopefully the fire goes over you. Um, fortunately, we had a lot of professionals with us um, in, in, you know, going back behind the fire lines. It wasn't actively burning in the area we were, but we could see smoke and plumes of smoke, you know, around us, small, small little fires that were burning. Um, but we had, you know, people on the lookout for, you know, wind patterns and the movement of the fire and really keeping an eye on um, the crew so we could just focus on, you know, getting those fish out of the, out of the stream. So um, it sounds more intense than it probably was. Um, it was still a little unnerving when you see smoke billowing up on the hillside and you're trying to rescue some fish, but um you know, it wasn't like there was fire really close by. So we brought the uh, portion of that population into the hatchery um, in hopes that some of them would survive in the wild. Um, but we had a subsequent thunderstorm that um, was pretty strong and wiped out the entire population of these unique cutthroat in the wild. So fortunately, we had them in the hatchery um, and our hatchery systems uh, the guys that we have working in there are amazing. Um, they do amazing work to get these fish on feed and allow them to survive um, and, and actually get them to reproduce. So we're now re reproducing those fish and trying to find other locations for them. So working on a number of other projects um, of other streams where we can remove non-native fish and then introduce these cutthroats. So yeah, a lot, lot going on in that realm. I'm so happy that they were able to be reintroduced. That's really incredible news to hear. Thank you so much for all your efforts there. I've got one more question for you. This is a fun question. When the firefighting helicopters come down to get water with those giant buckets from ponds and lakes, how does that affect the fish? Do fish ever get sucked up? That's an interesting question. It certainly can happen. One of the other things that we work closely with the Forest Service about is not only is just sucking up fish, but also sucking up diseases that, that are in the water that affect fish populations. One in particular is whirling disease and whirling disease can actually be in the stream. And so we want to make sure that firefighters are pulling water from areas that we know are clean or um, making sure that they're putting that water on areas where we don't have, you know, native cutthroat that are free of disease. So we've worked closely with the Forest Service to um, identify waters and especially as a fire breaks out, we'll have conversations with the Forest Service as that fire is just getting started on where we would like to see them take water and where we wouldn't. Um, however, that all that being said, we try to do our best with that, but the number one priority is fighting fighting the fires. So um, yeah, they certainly could get sucked up um, and brought to a different stream. Um, and like we talked about earlier with the hybridization, you know, you could potentially suck up a fish, a rainbow trout and stick it into a, a native cutthroat trout. And now we have the potential for hybridization in that, in that drainage. So it's probably pretty rare that that happens, um, but we can't say it doesn't, right? There's certainly areas where we have very small fish 
even fry, you know, up to you know, maybe a half an inch that could easily be sucked up and then put out um, on a fire. Um, most of the time, you know, they're not dumping the water right in a drainage. Mostly it's up on the hillsides. So if there was a fish to get in there, then, you know, they obviously wouldn't make it without water, but I uh, can't say it, it doesn't happen. Um, it, it certainly probably, probably does. I honestly thought that question was supposed to be a funny question, but uh, I never even thought about the implications of dropping foreign water yeah. and spreading a disease. All right. Final question. Do you have a, a big takeaway for the audience? Is there anything they could do to help wild fish populations? Just making, making sure people are aware of the native fish that we have throughout Colorado. You know, we have a lot of information on our website. You can learn more about, about that. We also have volunteer opportunities with Colorado Parks and Wildlife where you can sign up as a volunteer. As it relates to fire, obviously, we just got to be careful during drought conditions. Just be really careful out there with everything you're doing from starting a campfire. I think there's a ban on campfires right now, so we shouldn't even be doing that. But, you know, any sort of spark, cigarettes, um, any, any even driving your vehicle over a field of dry grass could start a, a fire as well. So just be really careful out there, really, be really cognizant about these wildfires because they affect not only people's welfare, their homes and everything, but also can have a big impact on, on wildlife too. Thank you so much. I really, really, really appreciate your time. No, it was great. I appreciate you doing this and getting information about parks and wildlife out there. Fish aren't the only ones affected by wildfires, though. So is Fido. Yep, that's right. Wildfires push wildlife out of the forest and right into your backyard and neighborhood. And while seeing more deer and elk on your walk through town may be cool, seeing more mountain lions and bears is not so cool. Especially when these predators are looking at Fido as their next meal. Hey, this is Jesse, and I'm going to talk with you about the wildlife-domestic-animal interaction resulting from wildfires. Pet predation becomes a major issue when big predators are dislocated from their natural environment and thrust into more urban areas. Colorado Parks and Wildlife has seen a large influx of wildlife intrusion this fall from the Cameron Peak Fire and have been working to relocate the animals when they get a little too close to humans and are smaller, furrier companions. One Morrison, Colorado resident was just featured on Nine News for trying to beat a mountain lion off of her dog with a snow shovel. The woman says she let her dog out through the garage door as usual to go to the bathroom when a big cat attacked the dog. She turned to find the nearest object she could to fend off the lion, but by the time she turned back around, the mountain lion had already taken off with her dog. She says the scariest part of the encounter, though, was when she realized after the fact that her grandson was supposed to be staying with her and could have easily been the mountain lion's prey instead of the dog. The news article states that predators tend to follow prey, and we know that big fires push prey into neighborhoods and can only assume the predators will follow suit. While consumption via mountain lion is an obvious downfall for pets of increased wildlife-domestic pet interaction, Perhaps another downfall that is overlooked is the potential for disease spread. The CDC warns that increases in infectious disease are a direct consequence of drought because wild animals will seek water from sources that humans and our pets also use. I don't think it would be too far-fetched to believe that fires could also push animals to seek out common drinking sources and introduce disease this way as well. 
An easy way to reduce the risk of this incident is to not leave out water for wildlife and to bring your pet's water source indoors if possible. Also, don't let your pets drink out of small ponds or puddles with stagnant water. While we all deeply care about our household companions, we cannot overlook the impact wildfires have on livestock predation as well. Hungry predators who don't find themselves in a local neighborhood may find themselves in a field of savory sheep or congenial cattle. Death of livestock can result in hundreds, if not thousands of dollars lost per animal for the rancher. One group of researchers in Botswana, though, might have a good solution to wildlife predation on livestock. They report that 683 cows with eyes painted across their rumps roamed the delta for four years, and none of them was killed, unlike their unmarked or cross-marked cousins. So when fires start pushing out big predators, it may be worthwhile for ranchers to get out the paintbrush. Wildfires don't only affect animal health through wildlife displacement, though. They also have huge impacts on the air that domestic animals breathe. Hi, everybody. Ryan here. Uh, Just a couple articles to discuss real quick. Top of the agenda, what we're really looking at is the effects of smoke inhalation on animals, both domestic and wild. And what we're really looking at is the uh, knowledge we have now vices what we don't know. So what we do know is that animals really experience the same symptoms that we experience, whether it's breathing wildfire air or say you burn something in your house. That same kind of coughing, gagging, difficulty breathing, eye irritation, uh, inflammation in your throat, uh, runny nose, all those same things that we experience, our animals experience. And we know this for a fact. Animals are pretty good at hiding some of these symptoms, but in the long run, we really know that they're experiencing the same things we're going through. What we really don't know is the long-term effects of what these animals and us, in part, are going to experience, because no real in-depth studies have gone into the exposure of humans or animals to this type of fine particulate matter, that 2.5 p.m., Uh, fine particulate matter. I know I'm underneath a study by the VA being a veteran, uh, having been deployed, being exposed to burn pits for long periods of time. We just don't know what's going to happen uh, with that PM 2.5 particulate matter and the long-term effects. So really, it's kind of a waiting game. We can treat the obvious symptoms of everything that's going on right now, and then it's just monitoring us and our animals to see what happens and uh, and really go from there. You know, there's some hypotheses on increased risk for cancer. And some of the stuff is all in the articles that are posted on our link page. But really, it's kind of a waiting game. And that's what's a little bit scary is we just don't know uh, what the long-term effects of getting this really, really fine particulate matter into our lungs, both us and our animals. What we can do that we know uh, is minimize the risk of that inhalation. So whether that be, you know, just like uh, is recommended for us, keeping your animals indoors if you can, the animals that do have to go outside or that live outside, uh, really minimizing uh, their activity. So they're outside, they're breathing, but they're not breathing heavily. There's a great article from UC Davis, and we've also done a ton of research here at CSU on the effects of smoke inhalation on horses. So we know if we minimize their exercise, basically to just 
the bare minimum of what they need that's really going to help prevent them inhaling at 2.5 p.m. or less uh, particulate matter. So that's really all we can kind of do. What we're really concerned with is just playing the waiting game. Um, we're at a point in time where we are doing the research. It's come to front stage, and now we just kind of need to wait on what's going to happen and be proactive in what we can do. So really the takeaway is minimize uh, the possible effects to your animals. Keep them inside. If you can't keep them inside, don't make them exercise too much if it's too smoky. Keep an eye on that weather statement. Uh, keep an eye on information pushed out by state, local, and federal governments, and uh, and just kind of wait. So from Yash, Jesse, and myself, we just wanted to close out this podcast with some links to reputable websites that have checklists or game plans in the event that an evacuation order does come down. So if you head to our link page, what you'll find is a series of links organized by animals from reputable websites that provide great checklists or plans in the event that that evacuation order does come down. And what you'll find is that preparation is key. So going through these checklists, a lot of it is organizing records, organizing uh, information about your animals before the evacuation order comes down. So when it does come time to leave, all you have to do is collect all that information and then head out the door. And what it also discusses is in the event, especially in large animals, if you can't get your animals out because there's not facilities available, how you should mark your animals, prepare your property, cut wires, leave gates open so your animals can escape. And then on the back end, first responders, organizations working in your community can find your animals and return them to you. So if you, again, head to our link page, you'll find all of these links and preparation is key. And then on that note, what you can do now with the current fires is really just try and minimize the stress to your animals. So if you can keep them indoors, keep them indoors. If not, just minimize the stress that they have to go through when they're outdoors. So minimizing exercise, keeping them bedded down when you can, and just keep an eye on them. Uh, seek veterinary care and listen to your state, local, and federal government when they pass information. And really, just thank you for listening to our podcast. We wish you all the best. Hopefully everyone stays safe in the situation and have a good one. Thanks for joining us on VetCast, Veterinary Climate Action and Sustainability Talks, the podcast created by veterinary students at Colorado State University. To find more resources about this topic and details about each episode, check out the show notes. Thanks and see you next time on VetCast.